and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle enemies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. Lovely listeners, welcome to August. Holy crap, it's already August and it's uh, a little terrifying. A little terrifying. I hope that you are doing okay with quarantine wherever you are in this world. I have a wonderful guest with me. I actually met her through the Friends of Nancy podcast Facebook group, which RIP to Nancy. Uh, loved that podcast. I'm very sad that it is uh, no longer going to be putting out new episodes, but it has created a wonderful gaggle of new friends. And so I would love to introduce today's guest host, Aubrey Calvin. Hello. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. You are so wonderful. We've gotten along so well every single time we've talked about doing this episode together. Um, Aubrey actually is a writer and a professor. She's all fancy-like, and she did a really wonderful series of posts back in June for Pride Month that was, uh, each day was highlighting a different queer person of color from history, and I was like, this person is super interested in all the things I'm interested in. Let's talk. Let's chat. So, Aubrey, tell me and also everybody who's listening a little bit about yourself before we hear your lovely dulcet tones for the next hour and a half. Well, I teach government at a community college here in Texas, and I have not listened to the last episode of Nancy. I don't know if you've listened to it yet. I can't bring myself to <laughs> to embark I, upon that sadness, so I've avoided it for about a month now. Yeah, I, I did, uh, but <laughs> honestly, mostly because... Uh, I'm in it for a second in the end. I also was supposed to, um, I, I recorded an episode of Nancy with Kathy that we were going to do on queer Abraham Lincoln, and it didn't get into the show before it canceled. So Aww, sadly, the world will never hear it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, and you actually, you have a podcast that is coming out or has just come out, right? Right. I met my friend India through the Friends of Nancy Gaggle project, and we both live in Texas. We both are from the South, so we started this podcast called Southern Queries. And depending yes. on when this episode of History is Gay comes out, our first episode should be out by now because we are launching in August, and it's all about telling stories about LGBTQ life here in the South. I'm very excited for it. And I'm always really high key about any project that uses queries with two as E's a pun. as a pun. <laughs> exactly. I'm always really excited by that. <laughs> I, know, I, I don't know why. I've been using queries like as a pun about queer storytelling for years now in my own head. And I found myself going, I love to spell things correctly. So let me start a podcast where the entire time I'm making up a new word or I'm yes. using a word that is not in the dictionary. But it's been fun because... It's the gay rules of grammar. You get to do whatever you want. You get to take whatever you, grammar you want and just make it a little bit for us. Grammar is fake anyway. It's not real. <laughs> um, so for this episode, we are going to be talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp 
who, as uh, some of you may know, is known to be the godmother of rock and roll. She was a gospel singer from the South who basically shredded on guitar before anybody shredded on guitar. And she was also queer. So we're gonna talk about that. I'm really excited. I gave I gave Aubrey the choice of like, who do you want to talk about out of out of the people that you you highlighted in your 30 Days of Pride? And we were like, yes, let's talk about this. And also there was somebody who recently sent in a uh, review asking for us to talk about <laughs> Rosetta Tharp, and we already were in the process. So thanks, person. This works out um, great. This works out great. Because when I was doing my 30 Days project back in June, it was right during the hype of all the marches, but it was also Pride Month. And I said to myself, how can I maybe combine the two, looking at race in America, but also looking at Pride Month? And I didn't mean to write for 30 days when I started. <laughs> it <laughs> it's was always just, how, that's always how it starts. You're like, I'll do this. I'll then. just do this thing for one day. And then it ended up being a 30-day project that now I don't know what to do with. So... <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that we're going to talk about a really amazing black queer lady trailblazer in music, and it it's bringing up a lot of feelings for me back to one of our first episodes on the queer blues legends, uh, so this is really fun. In terms of content warnings, obviously we're going to be talking about racism, slavery, and Jim Crow laws, as well as uh, there's some mentions of some tragic accidents, including deaths of children and illness nearly. So we'll, we'll put our content warnings in the show notes as usual. And obviously this is going to be a people-focused episode, so we will start off with a bio and then talk about our evidence for the person's queerness. And as always, we will end the podcast with How Gay Were They, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. Aubrey, do you have anything that you want to talk about or chat about before we start? Or do you want to just like dive, dive right in? Well, I think before we jump into the bio of Sister Rosetta Tharp, we have to understand a little bit the context of where she came from. Uh, mm -hmm. Sister Rosetta Tharp was mostly a gospel singer, and she was a gospel singer within the Black Pentecostal Church, specifically a denomination called Church of God in Christ. And that is a very specific denomination of Black Pentecostalism with a very specific set of rules and values. And so there are a lot of people that are Pentecostal. Being Pentecostal is a worldwide religious belief, but the term Church of God in Christ or Kojic typically mainly applies to the black church. And so I think it's important to understand a lot of that. A lot of the Church of God in Christ or Kojic church has been based around this idea of an enlightened form of holiness. And this is something that uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp was born into and that she was raised in and her parents were a part of. And a big part of the Kojic service was music. The music was lively. The music was joyful. And it was a very big, well, it was a very important way for them to actually praise God. Yeah, so Gail Wald, who is uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, who is going to be the majority of the source that we use. Um, she's pretty much like the only, one of the only actual scholars on uh, Rosetta Tharp. Uh, she talks about 
how Kojic and uh, the Pentecostal denomination for like Rosetta's grandparents' generation, this was like one of the first opportunities to create their own places of worship. Yeah, I think, and, and I think that's the distinction. When you look at a lot of black churches, whether they're black Baptist or AME churches, they're more just blacker forms or of, of white churches, whereas Kojic was basically completely black up from the very beginning without looking at how do we make our church similar to the white church. So a lot of the Kojic practices come from slavery. And there this is where I bring up my my minor in religious studies. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the Pentecostal religions were based on old slave practices. But instead of using old what we would call Negro spirituals, they created gospel music which is distinct and separate, but similar. And so Church of God and Christ services were typically very joyful, very exciting, but they did not allow for secular music. Mm. And that think that's very important. They wanted rhythm and they wanted blues and they wanted a lot of energy as long as it was for praising God. It was not they were they didn't allow secular music or secular dancing. The Pentecostal faith was one where they didn't allow for makeup, they didn't allow for flashy dresses, they didn't allow for things what were considered worldly. Mm-hmm. So really gospel music is the only worldly aspect of their faith, but it had to be religious lyrics. Right. Like Kojic services were really focused on communal singing and dancing as expressions of faith. This is also where um like you see speaking in tongues comes from like a lot of Pentecostal denominations and specifically Kojic the Kojic church did a lot of like speaking in tongues because there's connection between uh it was a very personal connection with the Holy Spirit. Um uh, my my like one of my favorite quotes was that a church elder once said, quote, the devil should not be allowed to keep all this good rhythm, which is absolutely delightful. There's one quote from Gail Wald that I wanted to mention. Not by coincidence is African-American gospel the only indigenous U.S. music in which women performers, especially soloists, predominate. Rock and roll a form Rosetta Tharp would help to invent has long been associated with masculine prowess and male musicians, but rock's gospel roots betray its feminine heritage, a heritage largely located in the Pentecostal church. And a lot of rock and roll in general also came from these gospel sounds that were emerging from specifically black churches. Well, I think another part of the terms of the context we have to provide is Historically, these black churches have not been pro-LGBTQ. And even you you find that to a degree today, the black church has always had this separate struggle between what the roles of men were versus what the role of women are inside the church. And there's always been a very strict biblical view of things related to sexuality. So in modern terms, some of the black church has come around and softened their stances against the LGBTQ community, but the Pentecostal Church of God in Christ still remains largely against homosexuality. So what we're going to see is that Sister Rosetta Tharp came from a community that gave her a spiritual grounding, but would not have been accepting of any forms of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and going back to what you were saying about 
how Pentecostalism shunned most worldly expressions and secular music. Even though that was the case, the gospel music infused the sounds of blues and ragtime and jazz to make the music more lively than other spiritual music that was happening at the time. And I think it's important to note that even non-Pentecostals, even non-religious people would attend services on occasion drawn in by the music itself, um, which actually caused a lot of tension because it was like, oh, look at all these outsiders just coming in and seeing a concert where for us, this is a spiritual exercise. Um, Langston Hughes actually once recalled I was entranced by their stepped-up rhythms, tambourines, hand clapping, and uninhibited dynamics rivaled only by Ma Rainey singing the blues at the old monogram theater. The music of these less formal Negro churches early took hold of me, moved me, and thrilled me. So I think that's a, some really important context to kind of put in that'll, that'll come in a little bit later as well. Okay, so do we want to maybe get into the biography a little bit? Yeah, let's let's talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp, or as we like to call her, the OG Electric Lady. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll start things off again with a quote from biographer Gail Wald. You're going to be hearing that name a lot. That I think really showcases who she was and what she did for music at the time that she was active. She combined independence and vulnerability, savvy and gullibility, sometimes in equal measure. Although she sang about the wages of sinful living, she pursued romantic relationships, primarily with men, but occasionally with women, wore pants before they were the norm for women, and swore like a sailor. She also maintained a lifelong affiliation with the church that regarded all of these behaviors as anathema. So, let's get into it. Uh, she was born March 20th, 1915, as Rosetta Newbin to Katie Harper and Willie B. Atkins in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. And both of her parents were singers. We don't really know a whole lot about her father other than he was a singer, but her mother was also a, uh, I think she, she played the harmonica and piano and she was an evangelist in the church. Later in life, Rosetta was kind of in the habit of, like, mythologizing her early years. Like, when she was really famous, she'd tell all these stories and she'd, like, omit a marriage, mix up dates, um, just to kind of create this, like, allure around her. And she would actually say that she was a miracle birth and there were, like, stories of her walking and talking before her birthday, first birthday. So basically being like a prodigy really early. And the uh, within the black church, that idea of mythologizing and stretching the story to fill whatever context you need is very popular and very common. Mm -hmm. So you do kind of get that it's almost a way to stretch a sermon to fit however you want it. She was doing the same thing with her biography. Oh, neat. Um, so yeah, Rosetta's parents were involved in Kojic and this was, you know, originally founded in 1894. And here's where Rosetta's musical gift was first shared. Her mother was a speaker in the church and so she encouraged her. And by the age of four, Rosetta was singing and playing guitar in the church as a soloist, not as part of like the children's choir, uh, and billed as a musical prodigy. <laughs> At the age of six in 1921, Katie Bell Newbin leaves Rosetta's father, Willie Atkins, and basically takes Rosetta with her out of Arkansas as part of her new traveling evangelical group. She was touting young Rosetta as a singing and guitar playing miracle in performances across the South. And these performances were like part sermon, part gospel concert. And there was also questions about, hey, I'm going to leave my husband because I can't travel without, I can't travel having a child and being unmarried. So I'm just going to 
go and kind of pretend we never, <laughs> you know, pretend we, we never had this relationship, essentially. Which uh, they, I don't know how much Willie Atkins minded because he allegedly had about three different marriages going at once. Yeah, he was. And he had a he lot. Had other family and other kids up north that Rosetta would later <laughs> meet. So, yeah, yeah, Rosetta really didn't know her father very well. I mean, you know, you you're around until six, and then you go off with mom. There's, you know, not a lot, not a lot to say. The men in this story are less than grand. Um, they eventually settled in Chicago in the mid-1920s, joining the Roberts Temple on 40th Street, where Rosetta became an even bigger sensation in the church and in their community at large. Uh, she tells a French interviewer in 1958, she tells this story, I remember that my mother set me on her knees when she played the harmonium at church. I would tap nearer my God to thee with a single finger, and my mother accompanied me with her left hand. When we moved to Chicago, I was six years old and I had already played the guitar pretty well. One of our neighbors, Miss Foley, took an interest in me and hired my mother as a domestic to have me close to her. But one day, my mother had had enough of working for her and the two of us set out to travel the church circuit. And you could tell already that she's like starting to just kind of mythologize her stories. Like, ah, yes, at this time. What should we think about? How much do you really remember from when you were six or seven? Exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you're asking someone to talk about their own childhood, things get mixed up, dates, times, circumstances. So I think there's always going to be a little bit of question about how all of this conspired. But we do know that while in Chicago, Rosetta learned that singing had multiple benefits for herself. Uh, it was a way that she used to earn her mother's approval. She knew that her mother's face lit up when she started to sing and perform. And then she also saw the economic benefits of it because whenever you're singing a song or giving a performance, there was typically a collection plate that was passed around. And then if the money with the collection envelope money went to Katie, Rosetta saw that, oh, music was a way to make a living. Mm -hmm. And of course, she's Rosetta's personality was known to be one of playful, being outgoing, and she saw that singing and performing was a way to get attention and make other people happy. I mean, her personality was considered, she was considered fun. She was considered, I mentioned playful and outgoing. She was known to play pranks. <laughs> and this idea of playing pranks would show up throughout her life that she was fun and she enjoyed life. Which was a contrast to the more button-down, demure, feminine, girlish role that she was expected to play. She instead was more garish. Uh, she's quoted as being someone who would bend over backwards to get a laugh. She used mm -hmm. flirting to disarm tense situations. And she was almost always found smiling and laughing. So... We could just see a little bit of her personality showing through. She was a natural performer, so much so that she actually left school to travel and perform with her mother by the age of 12. Scholars put that she had at most a sixth grade education, so not much more than junior high. Mm-hmm. And, and she the, was always self-taught with, with guitar oh yeah, and, and all of her musical talent, too. Or, not self-taught, gift from God. Gift from God. That's very true. <laughs> Gift from God. Yes. <laughs> no, um, and so in the, the mid-1920s and 30s, Katie Bell Newbin, as she was known then, and it should be known that 
Rosetta's mom, Katie, had quite a few different last names. Mm-hmm. And eventually she would just take on the moniker Ma Bell. Right. Because the last names would change quite a bit. Wall does believe that Katie married someone with the last name Newbin at one point, but that that marriage may not have lasted. Yeah, um, there's a lot of experience. There's a lot of like people that come in, like men that come into these women's lives just to give them their last name like, and then boom. They come and go, and then here's another last name, and then you move on. It's like, cool, I'll take that. I'll take that last name like, for the entire rest of my career. <laughs> Thanks. We'll take the well because at this point, Rosetta isn't even. She doesn't even have the last name that we know her by yet. Right. Um, yeah, she's like little little Rosie Bell. Little Rosie Bell. Yeah. Or Rosella, or sometimes, or <laughs> yeah. It, there was even a her lot of- name is a little bit fluctuates a little bit in the beginning, but we know that in the mid 1920s and 30s. Katie and Rosetta begin a life as traveling evangelists, first in the Midwest along the gospel circuit or what's called the gospel highway. And this travel continued through her teenage years. And it was during these travels that Rosetta perfected her sense of timing and performance. And she learned how to lead a crowd. And it was also during these travels that Rosetta met a Church of God in Christ preacher named Thomas J. Tharp. And she married him in 1934 at the age of 19, thus taking his last name, which she kept for the remainder of her life, even though Rosetta herself had a series of marriages as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Tommy Tharp, as he was known, um, and also may have been Tommy Thorpe. And then when Rosetta was, you know, later on decided to become Sister Rosetta Tharp, um, not like a specific religious affiliation or anything, but that was like her stage persona, um, she may have changed it to Tharp. We couldn't really find specific sources on that. Um, but he was generally unliked by Ma Bell and friends of Rosetta. Folks would say that he was cheating on her, was potentially even physically abusive, and was generally using her for clout and as an accessory to his preaching. Like that, like having this singing prodigy to go along with his sermons would give him more popularity. And this is kind of a pattern that would emerge in many of Rosetta's relationships. You do see that a little bit where... There's someone who is the male is just not as good, but hangs on to Rosetta and people come in for her popularity and they also hear his message. So you do see that conflict. We know that Rosetta and Thomas stayed together at their home base in Miami until 1938 when she decided to leave him after she discovered he was cheating on her. And she also decided to leave church music for a more secular career. Mm hmm. So she she picks up and she moves to New York and starts performing on, on stage at a place called the Cotton Club, which was New York's most renowned night spot. And as Gail Wald mentions, the promise of a secular career was seductive to her. It was money and an op- opportunity out of poverty, her unhappiness in her marriage, and maybe also she kind of had like a worldly quote unquote pull from the start. Uh, as Camille, as a friend Camille Roberts said, quote, she couldn't help but put a little oomph into the song. Now they're doing it, but when she started it, that was when you were getting away from religion. The Cotton Club was an all white club with exceptions for certain visiting celebrity performers, but of course then, the, you know, them and their party would sit in the back. Um, but some of the most prolific black performers of the time played there. So you had like Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Moms Mabley, Ethel Waters. 
And from her first performance at the Cotton Club Review in 1938, she was a huge hit. She kind of blew everybody away with her unusual sound and style. She blended this like blues style and guitar virtuoso with spiritual singing, which was something that people hadn't really seen before. And she was quickly being referred to in these circles and also in any uh, reviews as names like swinger of spirituals and holy roller singer or uh, my favorite, a swinkopated manipulator of loud blues tones. Uh, in ni 1938 actually ended up being a really good year for her and included some like major milestones. It was the first time that her material was copyrighted. A publishing contract with Mills Music, where she published the booklet 18 Original Negro Spirituals, which would actually serve as much of her repertoire for many years uh, of her career. And she signed a contract with Decca Records to start recording, and she would end up staying with them until the 1950s. And that uh, that 18 Original Negro Spirituals, that was how I first learned about Sister Rosetta Tharp. Really? Yes, because it's on display at the African American Museum, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's so, so cool. Yeah, it's on display. And that was how I first learned, oh, this is someone I need to learn more about. So that was my first entrance into this subject. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, her first um, her first recorded hit, Rock Me, uh, which had been around for years as a spiritual, uh, was really significant because this is like the first time on, uh, on an actual like record that she, you could see her starting to blend in things that would make it more appealing to a wider secular audience. She like omitted Jesus from some of the lyrics. She said, you know, can you, uh, can you hear me swing instead of can you hear me sing? And so some things had some double entendres and innuendos. And it was at this point that uh, she was performing at the Apollo, and she even played like a sold out show at Carnegie Hall in December of 38 called From Spirituals to Swing that essentially like made her an overnight success. So she's, you know, right at the top right now. So the fact that Rosetta was singing spiritual songs in secular settings was noted and an element of fascination. Life magazine ran a one-page article devoted to her called Swing Same Songs in Church and Nightclub. <laughs> this created friction, however, and many in the sanctified church began to turn their back on Rosetta. Rosetta would al always have misgivings about her move into the secular world. One of the worst things I did was to leave the church because I thought people in the church were kind and loving. And you do see, if you look at the history of a lot of black performers in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 40s, you see this kind of pull where you would start out singing in the church choir and then go over to Motown. Mm. This is a common source of friction. And so I just find it fascinating that she was one of the first to really mention that pull. Mm. She would play in churches during the week and nightclubs on the weekend. When asked why she played in nightclubs, she would say that there were more souls to save in the nighteries than in the churches. I just really <laughs> like the term nighteries. I like that, right? <laughs> yeah, there but was. But you uh... have to go where the sinners are, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta find them. I, mean, I don't know uh... if you could save people at church; they're already there. You gotta go find the <laughs> sinners, and if yeah. it happens to be a place that has great music and a couple of drinks, what's the problem? Right. 
Uh, there's actually one of the things we'll put in our show notes is there's this like, she, you know, she got like a one page spread in Life magazine, like we mentioned. And along with that, there was actually like a photo shoot and spread that uh, Life magazine planned to do, but it never actually got published there where they in the Cotton Club were like illustrating a jam session, like a jazz jam session with a whole bunch of famous jazz musicians like Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Billy Holiday and others. And there's this amazing photo of Rosetta playing her guitar with like her eyes closed and she's really in the moment. And you can see Duke Ellington is at the piano and Cab Calloway is just like looking over like in wonderment and awe. And Wald mentions this as the intimacy of Peterson's photograph hints at the high regard with which many secular musicians regarded Rosetta. So she was gaining a lot of traction. But even with that, she was still like a gospel singer. So she was never she never quite was able to kind of get totally in there. It's it's a hard balance because she was known to drink a little bit, Mm -hmm. which is frowned upon in the Pentecostal church. But she was known to be a little bit of a partier. Yeah, she'd have a she she'd have a little bit of a nip now and then with her with her friend Roxy Moore. And she also at this time started she signed a seven year contract with the Lucky Millinder swing band in nineteen forty one. And this is where she actually started singing like totally secular blues tracks like I Want a Tall Skinny Papa and Tight Like That, which there's there's no ambiguity there. You can't really make that about Jesus. Um, and we're not really sure exactly how she felt about this. You know, she was on this contract. This is the way that she, this is the music that she had to do in order to really start her career. She, at this time, kind of had less control over her repertoire. It was basically a vocalist for this group. And so she um, soon wanted to return to gospel music. Um, There's a quote that she says, like, I sang the blues, but God didn't like that, so I stopped. (laughs) Which is just, like, very matter-of-fact, like, okey-doke. She also was one of the only, one of only two gospel singers to record for the troops in World War II in 1942, and she was performing with the Millinder Band at the time and apparently was really popular like across color lines during this time. Now we do know that in 1943, she actually left the Millinder band. They had been at odds for quite a while. They are known to be have a good working relationship, but maybe not a good personal one. Hmm. So in September of 1943, she left the Millinder band and decided to renew her gospel career. And I just in a fun fact, you know, musicians <laughs> of the day were not known to talk about politics, but Rosetta took the unusual step of actually recording a public service announcement in which, of all things, she urged black Christians to get tested for syphilis. And that's a subject <laughs> the black church typically avoided talking about. But she said, you got to get tested for syphilis. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, of all things... That was her public service. Her a, a radio advertisement for a venereal disease was right. Yeah, she never. I don't really, know how to do. I don't she, know what to do with that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's. She didn't really get super involved in things like the civil rights movement, um, and she was, you know, kind of concerned about how speaking out so explicitly against racism would affect her career. But she did, in some ways, kind of go out of left field and do things like say, "Hey, everybody, go get tested." Get get your blood drawn. Go get that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so it was also during this time that Rosetta met her second husband, uh, Fosh Pershing Allen. 
Fush? Yeah, I think it's it's I think Puff? it's Fush? I think it's fuck. Fuck. Fuck is Pershing it, Allen. Fuck? It's a weird That's name. A, I mean, I don't know. I guess sure we'll go with that. Fuck. I never know how to pronounce <laughs> it. Uh, which spurred Rosetta to file actual divorce papers against Tharp, charging that he had wholly disregarded his duties as a husband. Mm-hmm. So even though she left him five, six years ago, she had remained married to him. And by 1944, she had reinvented herself as Sister Rosetta Tharp, gospel soloist, and performed at the Apollo and recorded some of her most famous songs. Yeah, uh, one of her actual biggest hits, uh, the biggest hit of her career was called Strange Things Happening Every Day, and she recorded this in 1944, and it's actually considered by many to be the first rock and roll song. And it was the first gospel record to cross over and hit number two on the Billboard quote-unquote race records chart, which is what they called the uh, R&B chart, which uh, started in in 1945. So, fun times. Uh, We want to play just a little clip of this so you can hear it. So, we'll listen to a little bit of it, and then we'll talk a little bit about the lyrics. All we hear, church, people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. On that last red judgment day, when they drive them all away, there are strange things happening every day. Every day. So the song wasn't just popular for its musical style, but for the lyrics, which you heard a little bit of, which hinted at the ways in which the world was shifting in enormous ways. World War II was ending in Europe, and the atomic bomb had just been dropped on Hiroshima, and Jackie Robinson had just been signed and had become the first black major league baseball player in the U.S. So there was a lot of change happening, and it's widely regarded by music scholars that strange things happening every day was kind of a subversive political satire. Right. And so during this time, Sister Rosetta Tharp toured throughout the 1940s, backed largely by gospel quartets such as the Dixie Hummingbirds, which went on to have great gospel success in their own right. In spring of 1946, she attended a Mahalia Jackson concert... (laughs) (laughs) a performance where she was joined by a young vocalist named Marie Knight, and Rosetta was instantly drawn in. Two weeks after seeing her perform, she showed up on Marie's doorstep with an offer to bring her along on tour. Just, I wanted to mention, like, Gail Wald calls the first time that Marie, that Rosetta saw Marie perform the acoustic version of Love at First Sight. So, giving you a little bit of hint. A little bit of hint about what's going on there. A little bit of hint there. Uh, Marie herself had just recently divorced her husband, and Rosetta was in the process of finalizing divorce from Alan, who had really only been interested in Rosetta's career to the level that he could profit off her. Hmm, Hmm. we've seen this before. Why does that sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) Um, In her book, Wald describes Knight as being a handsome young woman with shining, expressive eyes, a slim figure, and a natural elegance. Yeah, there were some other people who had said like that Marie Knight was so pretty they couldn't keep her their eyes off her. Which I've seen pictures. She's a stunningly She's a looker, gorgeous woman, right? Yeah, like who? Okay, I get, I get, I get you, Rosetta. She was a looker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
so the two began traveling together, which allowed them the ability to tour and travel unaccompanied by men. Of course, outside of the men in the band, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they began a partnership and they toured the gospel circuit for several years and even recorded some of their biggest commercial hits together. So in 1948, uh, Rosetta actually bought a house in Richmond, Virginia, where she, Marie, and Ma Bell lived while they weren't out on tour. By this time, Rosetta was wealthier than she could ever have imagined. She owned her own home, fancy cars, a Cadillac, and (laughs) (laughs) a Cadillac was a big thing back in the day. Yeah, I mean, to be, you know, like born in 1915 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas in poverty and then have her own home. I mean, they they had like, they had a shed for all of their like costumes and furs because Marie and Rosetta really liked like big gaudy uh, gowns. And my favorite thing is like, they, they also had a baby grand piano and they had a horse named Margaret. Why not? Why wouldn't Why not? you have a horse yeah. named Margaret? I mean, <laughs> but like, I just love the idea of like, here's me and my lady lover and my mom living in a house with our our horse. <laughs> and the, I think the thing that that's interesting about this is during this height of this popularity, she was still mainly singing gospel music. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. she did a few secular songs, but this was success still largely through gospel music or her version of gospel music, as it right. was. So. <laughs> Although admittedly, in 19, starting in 1949, the popularity of the duo began to take a downturn as other gospel singers like Mahalia Jackson was starting to eclipse them in notoriety. Mm-hmm. And this is also the same time where tragedy struck. Around this time, Marie Knight's mother and two young children died in a house fire and having to end the crushing loss of her mom and children was part of what ended their partnership, mm-hmm. as well as a desire with Marie of Marie to branch out and be more of a solo act. So yeah. they ended their partnership, although they would remain close friends, friends, <laughs> quote unquote, confidants, <laughs> uh, for the rest of Sister Rosetta Tharp's life. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, We'll talk more about Marie in a little bit, but we wanted to do a little aside on... So we've been talking about how Rosetta's unique singing and guitar style made her a hit. Even though she was, like, singing spirituals, her voice infused them in a bluesy and raspy lilt, often, like, lingering with words and punctuating with vocalizations that people hadn't really seen before. And so we thought it would be interesting to compare kind of how gospels and spirituals were being sung at the time to how Sister Rosetta Tharp would sing them. So uh, we're going to play a little bit of gospel music for you here. Here's Mahalia Jackson singing Didn't It Rain. Didn't it rain, children of my rain on my lawn. Didn't it, didn't it, didn't it, oh, oh my lord, didn't it And then here is Rosetta's version that she actually was, it was one of the the big hits between her and Marie Knight. Didn't it 
So you can you can clearly hear the difference. Uh, like Rosetta's is like rocking. One you would hear Saturday <laughs> night, and then yeah, yeah, yeah Mahalia's was go. definitely for Sunday morning. So. Exactly. Yeah, there. Um, yeah, I mean Rosetta would would do this like really interesting picking style that people hadn't really seen before. Um, and she also like just kind of couldn't contain the fun. Um, there's uh, Georgia Lewis, who is one of Rosetta's friends, uh, was quoted saying, some more conservative radio stations found Rosetta's singing about the baby Jesus with the bluesy lilt in her voice a little bit too racy and banned her record from the air. Uh, she says she just couldn't keep it in. So I love that. Like, you know, Rosetta Tharp was trying to discipline her voice, but she just she couldn't help just letting a little bit of that slip out. I mean, it goes to that outgoing personality that she is living life and having fun no matter what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that I love that that shines through <laughs> even in her gospel music. Yeah. I mean, she she was also like one of the first people once once the electric guitar came around, she would use distortion on it and she would play loud. I mean, she would even play loud with the acoustic guitar. And one of the reasons why she was so so popular is she's she's really like the first person to create lead guitar. Guitar at the time was being used as like a rhythmic, like a rhythm instrument, you know, like if you hear it kind of like folksy. And because she was playing on an acoustic guitar in the church and having to to fill spaces, she would instead of doing it rhythmically where the sound would just kind of go away, she would do a bunch of picking to keep the notes going for longer and louder. She was said by many that she could make the guitar talk and that she had an intense connection and emotionality with her playing. Uh, Another one of Rosetta's friends, Madame Ernestine Washington, said, this is is such a great quote, she could do runs, she could do sequences, she could do arpeggios, she could play anything with the guitar. You could say something and she could make that guitar say it. I mean, she could put that guitar behind her and play it. She could sit on the floor and play it. She could lay down and play it. Oh, she was an artist. And that made the people go berserk. And they just knew that she was all right, whatever she did. I mean, that's, so a, that's a write-up you don't hear these days. It's- right? <laughs> It's like, like the original, like, just, like, like, uh, like the original rock star, right? Like, just, just wailing just on the guitar, it, right? laying, laying down, hopping around. And so this level of, of amazing guitaring inspired and predated countless musicians, including Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash, and Elvis Presley. With her particular style of guitar playing, she was the predecessor for rock and roll, and really she never gets the credit for it. This is one of those where you have to ask, well, who created rock and roll? If you're having the conversation- A queer black woman! (laughs) If you're having the conversation and she's not in the conversation, you're not really saying the whole story here, right? Right. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's it's the time, it's the story that we hear over and over again. Ah, yes. White dudes went ahead and stole everything from black people. Uh- I mean, fuck it. Let's just put in the fuck colonialism jingle, even though it's, you know, homegrown. Just put it in there. Sure. (laughs) Fuck, 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 fuck colonialism. (laughs) Yeah, uh... When people, pe- oh, when people would ask about her, ask her about her music, she would say, oh, these kids in rock and roll? This is just sped up rhythm and blues. I've been doing that forever. (laughs) 
Yeah, you had you had in the me- in like the mid 1950s, strange things happening had kind of been like rediscovered by a bunch of white male musicians, um, and that's kind of really where we start to see like ah yes, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and and Elvis Presley are the predecessors of rock and roll. Um, there was even like a news article quoted as writing when she accompanies herself on guitar, she might as well be a blacked up Elvis in drag. Which is the worst I mean, thing that I've like, ever heard. I mean, how infuriating is that? That is horrible. Ugh. A blacked up Elvis in drag, even though she was literally doing it first and mm-hmm. better. Yeah. Oh, that is frustrating. You know? It's incredibly frustrating. I mean, so one Chicago gospel singer, Geraldine Gay Hambrick, said that when Chuck Berry came out, I had already seen all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jerry Lee Lewis had seen her perform. So, I mean, at least these guys who are basically, like, taking her entire style and saying, oh, thanks, I'll take that. Um, at least they, like, acknowledge that she was an influence. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis said, I said, say, man, there's a woman who can sing some rock and roll. I mean, she's singing religious music, but she is singing rock and roll. I said, woo, Sister Rosetta Tharp. On Elvis from Gordon Stoker, not only did he dig her guitar picking, that's really what he dug, but he dug her singing, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Gordon Stoker uh, played with Rosetta as part of a, a quartet called the Jordanaires, and he would actually go on to play with Elvis. And so the, the Jordanaires was a white gospel singing group. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of crossover here. Yeah. Um, uh, Johnny Cash, recalled a friend, had an album by black singer Rosetta Tharp. And that song, Stranger Things was on the album, and I'd listen to her sing that song over and over again. He once saw Rosetta perform and remembered it as one of the most moving musical experiences of his life. And Johnny Cash's daughter said Rosetta was his favorite artist. Then why'd you steal all her stuff? Well, I mean, I think here's what I find interesting. (laughs) Because it sounds a lot like the artist recognized her value. There's a level of respect among the artists. Right. But the writers about rock and roll and the journalists and the newspapers really tried to forget her. But it does sound like within the music community, there was a lot of respect there. Right. Well, and I mean, in terms of like recognizing um, like Johnny Cash and a whole bunch of these others got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame way, way, way before her. And even like, I think even Johnny Cash mentions her in his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame entry, but she wouldn't get added until literally like two years ago, which we'll talk about near the end. Spoiler alert. We haven't gotten to that part of the podcast yet. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Uh, Okay. So moving on here. Um, So shortly after departing from Marie, so we're getting back into our bio. Shortly after departing from Marie, Rosetta began partnering with Jubilee quartets, such as the Twilight's female gospel singers, and then even her own backup group, which she dubbed the Rosettes. And as we mentioned, around this time, she also began singing with the group The Jordanaires, which was actually a white gospel group known for singing African-American gospel and and spirituals. Uh, And they were actually one of the first white quartets to sing and tour with a black musician. (laughs) There's, There's a story from Gordon Stoker, who said that to kind of circumvent issues of like a white group being on stage with a black musician at the same time, Rosetta would frequently just like not tell the venues that her backup group was white. So like Gordon Stoker told a story about how one time he like went to the stage door and he's like, hey, I'm with the Jordanaires. And the guy like looks down at the paper and he's like, wait, 
Like, what? You, How? You're what? <laughs> so I'm like, surprise! <laughs> yeah. And even on tour with the Jordanaires, uh, Rosetta traveled in a bus with her name on the side, which was pretty impressive and luxurious, uh, but it was also a necessity because of, you know, racism. <laughs> Yeah, you know, she's traveling around with this white singing group. They never really realized like, oh, this tour bus that seems super plush and luxurious is is primarily because like they couldn't get hotel rooms and they wouldn't be able to go into restaurants with the Jordanaires. And when we're traveling in the South, we need someplace to go that's safe and someplace that's protected from the white racists. So it was mm-hmm. a bit of a fortress, if you will. Yeah. Um. So, around this time, she recorded a Christmas album that did pretty well, but her popularity was kind of still faltering. She was getting older, Mahalia Jackson was kind of eclipsing her, people were starting to see her as a little outdated, old-fashioned. So, by the 1950s, she needed something to boost her publicity. Enter Irvin and Izzy Feld, two uh, Jewish, (laughs) funnily enough, Jewish gospel promoters, who they started working together in 1950, and they got... They got this idea for, like, the perfect publicity stunt to bring Rosetta back into the limelight. They were like, let's combine a wedding and a concert. Like, let's fill up an entire stadium and have it be this huge event. Um, One problem, though, there was no husband. (laughs) Like, Rosetta was not dating anybody. There was nothing going on. But Rosetta's like, that sounds like a great idea. And she signed a contract and promised to produce a groom within seven months. So once again, we do see that idea of men being there as a form of convenience, Mm -hmm. not necessarily a romantic intent. It's just, hey, if that helps the gimmick, I guess. I mean, what do you need, a man? Do you need a a horse (laughs) that paints? What do you want? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So, so flash forward to like spring 1951, she meets a man named uh, Russell Morrison, who we probably know more about him than any of her other husbands. He was like kind of tangentially connected to the music business, but wasn't really in anything. So it's like, all right, cool. I wrangled myself a husband. Let's do this thing. So they started promoting this as like the greatest spiritual event of the 1950s. And uh, they like put ads out that showed its extravagance and flamboyance. There was like literally an ad that was like, wedding bells ring out for Sister Rosetta Tharp. Witness the most elaborate wedding ever staged. Everybody is welcome. Plus world's greatest spiritual concert. At like, the, the very bottom. Like, <laughs> right. At the very bottom in like the, the tiniest text. Like, oh, yeah, there you go. Here's an afterthought, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So more than 20,000 people attended this wedding, quote unquote, concert. Some even brought wedding gifts, including a television, which would be expensive back in the day. Yeah, like they they were just like literally like they bought tickets to this thing and it's a concert, but they're treating it like a like a regular old wedding. Like I wonder how many how many things they had to like get rid of from all of these like 20,000 people bringing wedding gifts. Like I don't we have 22 blenders. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> we have 17 right. toasters. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, for an event, though, I mean, I don't know how many weddings you go to that cost money, but the tickets for this cost between 90 cents to sit up in the very high nosebleeds and $2.50 for the close-up seats by the bases. So, 
I mean, you made a little bit of money. I mean, 90 cents to 250. That was a lot back in the day. Yeah, that was pretty good in 1951. <laughs> uh, the wedding <laughs> itself was held at Griffith Stadium and was immensely over the top. Uh, just the gown and the jewelry alone for Rosetta cost a small fortune, around $1,500. And the dress was driven to her in its own car. Uh, so they had a separate car for the dress, and then she was buttoned into the dress and was actually helped to get dressed by a white woman, which mm-hmm. is a big role reversal for the day. Uh, with the dress, she got it from this like very prominent wedding clothing store in Richmond called Thalamers. And the the pageantry around the dress in the wedding could possibly have come from an incident a couple of years before where Rosetta had like walked into the store and wanted to buy a whole bunch of stuff and wanted to pay cash and being racist fucks, they were like, hmm, what is this like black lady doing with all of this money? And basically got her arrested. And it wasn't until they were like, this is Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's very famous. She has lots of money that um, they were like, oh, shit. And so basically, like a couple of, you know, a couple of years later, what this probably was, was let's make up for, <laughs> let's make up for our faux pas <laughs> and really try to save our brand and also like, send like, a white lady sorry. to, we're so sorry. Yeah, send a white lady in this, in this limousine with this uh, dress to button this like very famous woman into her dress which i mean is is i mean it's a big deal but it's still like you had her arrest because she had money racism because Because racism racism. (sighs) Uh, okay so the concert celebration following the ceremony had performances from the harmonizing four marie knight and it was even, actually her br- her maid. It was of her honor. maid of honor, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, and then Rosetta herself performed on the electric guitar, backed by the Rosettes. Uh, there were even fireworks, including one that was a replica of Tharp with her guitar. I don't know how you do that, but I. I mean, well, I guess I mean like they do weird shaped fireworks I, at Disneyland, I mean, I guess, right? I guess, but. We do it with computers. I don't know how they did it back in the day. I, mean, I know. I wish there were pictures. There's, um, yeah. you could actually listen to the entire concert. Um, but like, <laughs> there was the the preacher was kind of a showman and made a bunch of jokes about like Rosetta obeying Russell and being like, ha 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 ha. <laughs> um, so it was it was very much it was very much like an entire display of showmanship. I mean, and in keeping in with her religious roots, the preacher was a Church of God in Christ minister, mm-hmm. and she had children there because they had been doing a youth revival in the city. So the minister and the kids from the youth revi- youth revival just came to the wedding. So she actually never lost that connection to her her roots. I find that very interesting. Um, Yeah, it was like a big party with all of her old church friends. Yeah. But unfortunately, the concert wedding extravaganza ended up being one of Tharp's last major musical accomplishments in the U.S. Uh, She was just becoming too eclipsed by Mahalia Jackson and other gospel artists. And really, the fans of gospel music were not as welcoming to her because of her secular music. And so in 1952 and 1953, she actually tried to stay relevant by becoming an R&B singer, signing with Decca Records, and that wasn't that successful either. 
We had mentioned earlier how she at one point had all this wealth and Margaret, her horse, and Cadillacs. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, in the spring of 1957, there was the shocking news that actually she had gone broke. She hadn't kept up with the payments on her house. She hadn't kept up with the payments on all of her possessions. And the bank ended up repossessing most of her house and what she owned in Richmond. And this is mainly attributed to that husband, Russell, who she Mm -hmm. found for the wedding concert. He had not kept up with the bills. He had mismanaged all the funds. And she was forced to sell her tour bus and move into a hotel. Yeah, Russell was really kind of, you know, she was like, here, you take care of all these finances. And so there's questions about whether or not he like spent it all or mismanaged everything, didn't pay these things, or if she was also just like not really thinking about her finances. So, you know, we're not quite sure. We're not quite sure, but this is a common story. There are a lot of older black musicians that were able to make a lot of money and still died in relative poverty. Sammy Davis Jr. died with millions of dollars in debt. Bojangles Robinson died with uh, thousands of dollars in debt. So there was definitely a disconnect there between the ability to make the money and the ability to manage the money. But we're blaming it all on Russell. I think that's just fair. We're just going to blame him. Russell's a a nice scapegoat. (laughs) Yeah, we're just going to blame him. I don't know if it's true or not, but we're going to blame him. So... We get a little bit of like a like a rebirth and revival. Um, in November 1957, after she had been talking for years about her desire to go abroad, kind of like follow in the footsteps of Josephine Baker, who became an expat and was, you know, became really famous in Paris. Rosetta actually was booked for a month-long UK tour by British trombonist Chris Barber, where she basically like fell in love with Europe and Europe fell in love with her. Britain at the time was kind of in the middle of like a post-war blues revival and they'd become fascinated with African-American music, but had never actually seen like actual real black people playing this music live. Um, So they like fell in love with Rosetta. And the interesting thing was that in Europe, Rosetta wasn't entirely, you know, spared from racism. It was just kind of like a different flavor abroad. Um, and, you know, was kind of filled with like a lot of fetishization. A lot of um, Europeans were treating these African American musicians that came over very differently than their own black populations. Um, gross. Yeah, it was very common. Well, I wouldn't say very common, but it was common for a lot of black artists, writers, musicians to want to leave the United States for the lighter form of racism of racism light Europe and (laughs) it's just that ability where I remember reading one where Josephine Baker said in Europe I can breathe Mm, mm -hmm. in a way that you just can't breathe in the United States if you're a black artist or a black creative so the idea of wanting to go to Europe is very common very popular, especially if you could have a career over there and still make money, and only experience mild racism versus Jim Crow segregation. As her popularity abroad began to skyrocket, you know, the news outlets started to pick up on this and she gained more popularity back at home, never to the level that she had experienced in like the 1940s. But the news outlets started to tout her as an international star, and her finances were essentially restored by the 1960s with this overseas success. So at this point, she moves to Philadelphia and buys a new house to live in with her mother and Russell, and this time, instead of having a horse with her lady lover, um, 
or uh, alleged lady lover. Um, she got a poodle. She got a white poodle named Chubby, which is the best name ever. <laughs> and this, I love Chubby. <laughs> Apparently, Chubby hated everyone except for Rosetta Tharp, and like especially did not like Russell, along with like all of Rosetta's friends. Uh, oh. She, uh, God, she she toured Britain as a part of this like American folk blues and gospel caravan in 1964, and this tour showcased one of the last performances actually in a television special which would lead to a few other stints on gospel tv for rosetta at this time this concert which was called the blues and gospel train concert was actually held at like a defunct railroad station and it was like one of the most amazing performances of her career it was raining and she was introduced as like one of the foremost gospel singers in the world she came out in like this like horse-drawn carriage and she like comes down from it like getting you know getting help like in her heels being like oh look at the the sweet horsey the sweet horsey and it's like pouring rain and then she just starts wailing away on her guitar and it's so cool to it's watch. so amazing to watch right yeah you're just like how what this is i i never expected to enjoy her music so much and because i had like all of these preconceived ideas and i'm like dang i really like gospel music like, when this it's is like really this. good <laughs> it's really good um so she basically spent the end of the 1960s touring the festival circuits and releasing some albums, but she never quite got back to the notoriety that she had previously enjoyed, especially after her mother passed in 1968 and she kind of slowed down her touring and her performances. She was really affected by uh, her mother's passing. Yeah. Uh, and then even after, um, so after her mother passed in 1968, uh, she actually saw her own health begin to decline. And while on tour in Europe, she fell seriously ill in Switzerland. And so this is late 1960s after her mother had passed. And she had to be taken to Geneva Hospital complaining of numbness in her arms. And she was diagnosed with diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, Rosetta herself was reticent to see a doctor. And she tried to continue on as if nothing was wrong. And her friends were really trying to get her to seek medical treatment and to seek uh, go to a hospital. And she was not willing to do that. And so she developed gangrene in her legs. And she had to have one of her legs amputated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she apparently hated doctors. Yeah, she, so not unheard of. She would still continue to perform after the amputation. Um, she would sit on the stage. She would sit in her wheelchair, but she couldn't really step around on the stage like she loved to do. And so, you know, there was there were a lot of reports about her kind of just being dejected at this time. But she would still kind of put on a brave face and like hop around on stage to um, many of her, her friends recall that it was like Russell who essentially urged her to keep performing. She would say that she really, really loved continuing to work. But a lot of friends at the time said that he was really kind of looking after himself and his needs and profits rather than prioritizing Rosetta's health. Her last performance was in July 1972. And she was actually like just about to put together a contract for some new recordings with uh, Savoy Records when literally the day that she was going to go in to record, the person from Savoy Records checked in on her, went to her house, um, and she did 
didn't answer and she actually had experienced another stroke. The the stroke from before is actually what had caused her um to have her be amputated. Uh, yeah, to yeah. have her leg amputated. And so on October 9th, 1973, she passed away in the hospital at the age of 58. She was really young. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so she didn't have a will, effectively leaving everything to Russell, and she was buried in an unmarked grave in Philadelphia. Yeah, apparently Russell was kind of too cheap to buy a headstone. Um, and a lot of people said that, like, her kind of understated funeral was because of Russell. Yeah. Um, but it just, it just reminds she didn't, me so didn't much. didn't want to spend the money. It's... Right. I mean, it just reminds me so much of, like, the fact that Ma Rainey was buried in, in a grave without headstone or, or it wasn't ma rainey it was bessie smith bessie smith was- bessie smith ma rainey's headstone said that she was a, or that her death records called her like a domestic and it's like excuse me rude mother of the blues <laughs> Um, uh, but Rosetta herself actually got a headstone when Gail Wald, whose biography we've been using as our primary source, she organized a memorial concert to raise money to get a headstone. And that was in 2008. And then the governor of Pennsylvania declared January 11, 2008, Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. So it's good to see that the biographer, who clearly had a connection to Sister Rosetta Tharp, took that extra step to make sure that she was properly honored in death. Yeah, yeah and uh, Marie Knight actually performed at that concert as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp would later be inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in Memphis in 2007 and the Arkansas Black Hall of Fame in 2012. In 2018, she was finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and this was years after Elvis Presley, after Johnny Cash, after all of these white men that got famous doing the art that she helped create. She was finally recognized in 2018. And then just this year in 2020, the Grammys awarded Rosetta with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, see, that one's new. I didn't know about that. When was, when were the Grammys? Like a couple months ago? That was announced in January. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that's a little fun fact I discovered about an hour before we started recording. Oh, neat. Nice, cute, That one was recent even to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got through the bio. Uh, She had a, a, if not long, very storied life. And so you're, you know, we've hinted a little bit at Marie Knight. Let's, Let's move into our why do we think they're gay section. Okay. Why do we think they're gay? <laughs> yeah, why don't you start us off, Aubrey? Um, I think the thing is, it's hard to say someone is explicitly gay when they don't say it themselves and when we they come from the Church of God in Christ background. That environment and their rules about what would be considered holy or sanctified or appropriate really would make it hard for a black queer person of the church to accept themselves. Mm-hmm. But... It's more about her actions than it is about identifying words or labels. Another reason that makes us think that she was gay was her bucking of gender expectations. 
she absolutely rejected a lot of the gender norms of the day. So Yeah, at the time, um, so we just wanted to like put this in here as a, a little precursor. At the time, guitar playing was intrinsically linked with masculinity. There were a lot of associations between the guitar having like a female shape and male musicians like playing a woman's body, which is real gross. Um, one scholar even calls uh, the electric guitar a techno phallus, which please don't. Please stop. Um, and gross. so, like, when when Rosetta Tharp would play, like, the, the guitar was, like, an extension of self rather than an object that she was bending to her will. When, when she was often uh, given the backhanded compliment that she could play like a man, Rosetta would frequently say, can't no man play like me. I play better than a man. Which, like, just one of the reasons why I fucking love her. She would play circles around male guitarists at the Apollo Theater, and she would challenge them to guitar battles. Um, she's like, oh, can you play this? Can you play this? Nah, I did that better. She, uh... It's like an Annie Oakley, anything you yes, can do, yeah, I can anything. do better, you know? <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's very much like Annie, get your gun. Yes. Um, her friend Inez Andrews would say, uh, she said that, that she was the only lady that I know that would pick a guitar and the men would stand back. Even today, men don't give her no credit because she was competition. You know, a man's yeah. not going to sit up and say a woman can beat him doing nothing. <laughs> right. I mean, so yes. I, I just find that interesting. I mean, so I mean, I think if you look at her environment where she came from, if you look at the, her instrument of choice, because although she could play piano when she was really young, she really did become known for this level of guitar playing. Uh, and then another reason why we think she's gay was the romantic aspects of it, things that we've talked about. Uh, as we've mentioned above, most of the men in Rosetta's life ended up essentially seeing Rosetta as a meal ticket and being interested in her career. These relationships were more considered business transactions than anything. So, so Ira Tucker Jr., who knew Rosetta later in life, described uh, her first husband, it was Deal, see? And I think that's what influenced her, Rosetta throughout her life, was that it was very hard for her to separate her personal life from a deal. Do you know what I mean? It was a deal with with Russell, uh, Rosetta's third husband. And I think most of the time, the men in her life, it turned out to be some type of deal. You know, an arrangement. Some situation that, you know, if it's going to work for you, then it's going to work for me too. Mm-hmm. So these were business transactions. These weren't marriages, which, I mean, if you look at the history of marriage, a lot of marriage is a business (laughs) transaction. I mean. Yeah. There was like some quote. I can't remember exactly who said it, um, but like about Russell, the third husband, it was like, it wasn't a love affair, but it was a good way to have a husband. Um, so, you know, a lot of convenience. And and when we say, it's really interesting, like we say, like, why do we think they're gay? Most articles or things that are mentioning Rosetta will mention her as either a bisexual or like a closeted lesbian. Um, I'm happy to call her bisexual. I mean, we don't know because she never actually Labeled openly herself. talked we about it, which, which is the next thing we're going to talk about is kind of her relationship to Marie Knight. Uh, so Marie was probably the most stable and healthy relationship in Sister Rosetta Tharp's life. And in addition to uh, their stage partnership, they remained close confidants for the rest of Rosetta's life. 
Uh, a little bit about Marie, just for some context. She grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and was a little younger than Rosetta. I think she was about like 10 years. And much like Rosetta, she took to gospel singing at, uh, on the stage at an early age. And she also kind of had a very similar trajectory. Like she would, you know, be put up on a table so that the church could see her sing and play. And she began traveling the revival circuit. And she had, she met a man named Albert Knight. She said that, like, she met him on Monday and married him on Thursday and had two children with him and had gone through a divorce with him shortly before meeting Rosetta. Uh, Marie Knight would actually go on to outlive Rosetta. Um, she actually didn't pass away until 2009. So she, you know, kept kind of having a career. So during their early years, when they were collaborating, that's when the rumors began to circulate in the gospel circles that they were more than just friends. And this is something that Rosetta and Marie dismissed as gossip, but there were a lot of people talking about this within the gospel community and speculating, and it was considered one of those more open secrets than anything. As Wald notes, it's difficult to say for sure how church audiences might have reacted to hearsay about Rosetta's bisexuality, although it's easy to imagine that as a woman she would have been treated more harshly than outwardly gay men like Little Richard. Mm -hmm. And Rosetta Tharp is often mentioned in articles about Little Richard and his homosexuality. And so she's often mentioned as like a small footnote in the larger story about Little Richard mm -hmm. as someone else. He also came up in the church. He was recognized as being a flamboyant queer man from the start of his career. And he was a part of this recognition that the, a lot of the black gospel community is queer or has a lot of queer people in it. But most of the queer visibility went to men versus women. Mm -hmm. And then when we're thinking about Little Richard, we also have to remember that later in life, he actually spent the last decade of his life reclaiming his spiritual heritage and renouncing claims of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. But Sister Rosetta Tharp's often the footnote in his larger story, which is unfortunate. It's sad. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a story that, that Little Richard said that like he went to a concert and met her and she gave him some money and he just like couldn't believe that she had just like given away this amount of money to, you know, like a little, basically a little kid. A little nobody kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you were mentioning, the fact that we have like little Richard coming out of the church, there was a recognized presence of queerness, it, much in the same way that it happened in the blues world, there were presence of, of queer folks, even if it was kind of under the radar. One story that we read from the book is uh, Willa Ward, who is the sister of gospel singer and contemporary of Rosetta and Marie uh, named Clara Ward. She tells a story about her sister Clara revealed to her that she had engaged in a clandestine affair with a female gospel singer, to which I say, whomst. Uh, she also apparently overheard a gay male friend talking to Clara, saying, I know this sharp young child who just love you. She's a stone man, honey. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> um, Wald says, uh, I, I wanted to put this quote in here, which was really good. The circulation of this and other lore indicated that the gospel world had its own legends of outlaw identities and behaviors, of sissy men and bulldagger women, of philandering evangelists and pilfering prophets, of hypocrites who boozed up backstage before singing in front of the curtain about the virtues of holy living. For homosexuals and her audiences, rumors about Rosetta's sexuality might have been liberating, an invitation to look for telltale signs of affirmation of their own veiled existence. Um, so while 
very few people in their lives actually wanted to speak on record about the nature of Rosetta and Marie's relationship. And even though they actually, like, you know, would go on to say, no, this is not true, this is all gossip. Basically, the reason why we we now claim Rosetta Tharp as a queer icon is all really comes from this one book. Every source that we looked at went back to this book because Gail Wald had gone through and done a whole bunch of interviews. And so she has actually said that not a lot of people wanted to go on record, but she, as she was talking to people about her partnership with Marie Knight, so many people were talking about them being more than just, like, gals being pals. So a couple of folks who actually, like, went on the record to talk about this in some ways uh, were Barney Parks, who toured with Rosetta in the Dixie Hummingbirds. He actually told Wald that she and Marie were intimate, and one of Rosetta's other friends anonymously reported that Rosetta, quote, had female as well as male lovers, so it may have not just been Marie. Gospel scholar Tony Halebutt told Wald of times when Rosetta would comment her thoughts on, like, attractive women in her audiences, and he actually, he actually would say, um, Rosetta belonged to the whosoever will church, as in whosoever will let him or her come. Uh, if that's not an anthem for bisexuality, I don't know what is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this story is the best. Oh. <laughs> uh, Alan Bloom, who was one of Rosetta's early promoters, said that he saw. So during like you have the honey, uh, you have the the wedding concert, right? And then they went on a honeymoon tour. And if you remember, Marie was the maid of honor. He says that he actually like went to go get them for something, uh, and walked into their hotel room, and he saw Rosetta and Marie uh, having a threesome with. Uh, singer, evangelist, and spiritual healer, the prophetess Dolly Lewis. So, just a nice little infligante delicto. What a honeymoon, you know, just, <laughs> you know, directly after your marriage to your third husband, just go have a lady, lady threesome. Just why not? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think Russell was needed for that. <laughs> Yeah, and apparently um, Marie would, like, go on to get really close with Dolly Lewis as well, and and they would live together for several years, so... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing that we wanted to mention is that Rosetta actually took to calling Marie Lil' Sister, which all I can think of is... Hey, mister. She's my sister. You know, from La La Vie Bohem? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On the tables? (laughs) Right. So, so we... um, We really struggled to get, like, a word of the week for this episode, but we'll do a little tiny little brief one, so. Word of the week. Gay word of history. So just, like, a little brief aside, we wanted to mention, you know, they would frequently call each other, like, sister, little sister, um... And there is a history of, like, sister, brother, siblings being used as euphemistic terms. euphemisms, yeah. Yeah, euphemistic terms for um, same-sex intimate relationships. And I actually just wanted to take a minute because Aubrey taught me a term that I was not familiar with, which is honeypot. Even though it doesn't directly come up in Rosetta Tharp's life, I figured it was a good opportunity for us to all learn some new queer vocab. So, honeypot... Uh, honeypot is a piece of queer terminology that's used a lot in the South, especially among black lesbians. Honeypot tends to refer to the sweet taste of a woman's vagina. Oh my God. And so, 
<laughs> when you have lesbians talking to each other about someone having a sweet honey pot or being called a honey pot, it's just this little bit of a euphemism of saying, oh yeah, she's a good one to get with. Oh my so God. I found that term. So again, it's not directly related to Sister Rosetta Tharp, but I just love talking about that word. And there's an, there's apparently an entire book called Honey Pot, uh, like black women who love other black women or something like that. I think that's that's the title of the book, but there's an entire book about yes, it. So check it out. <laughs> so going back to Marie and Rosetta, the way that they talked about each other and stayed in each other's lives clearly shows the depth of their care for one another. Just some of our favorite stories of their like relationship and closeness is like Marie said of Rosetta, I didn't go looking for her. She came looking for me. They would like wear coordinated outfits, which is a big game mood. And Marie talked a lot about her role as, like, caretaker for Rosetta in that she would kind of help take care of the finances on the road and would indulge Rosetta uh, when she, like, wanted to play games late at night or have just playing until, like, 2, 3 in the morning and would fiercely defend her against men who wanted to take advantage of her for her money and fame. Uh, one quote that we really wanted to put in here is that when Marie's children and mother were killed in the 1949 fire, Rosetta, like we said, went to New Jersey for the funeral, and she kind of took on this caretaking role for Marie, who had taken care of her for so long. And this really beautiful quote, I got you from your mother. Your mother gave me permission to take you out here with me, and I'm going to stick with you. Whatever happens, you'll always be my little sister. And as long as anybody on Broadway has got a dime, we're going to survive. And then while Rosetta was touring Europe, and even after she got sick, she and Marie kept in touch and stayed close. There's a church pianist who worked with Marie Knight later in her life that like even in the 1970s Marie would talk to him about enjoying her years with Rosetta and you know she would be performing and he said that when she was performing Marie would get very full you know she'd be thinking about sister yeah she'd be getting asked you getting full now you think sister girl and she'd say yeah that sister Rosetta got me so she would always get you know she would get really emotional when she was thinking about Rosetta. When Rosetta died and she received a call from Russell, Marie instantly went down to Philadelphia to help with funeral arrangements. She's quoted as saying, We lived our lives together. We shared with each other while she was alive. I only wanted to see her buried as the person that she was. Mm -hmm. It's that's such a beautiful quote. And yeah. she even went with the person who did Rosetta's hair and dressed her at The Undertaker's, reminiscent of when they traveled together and did each other's hair and makeup in the 1940s. Yeah, on the tour bus. I, th I think a good place to kind of like end talking about their story together is from Wald, who says it best, that the memory filtered through the tear-stained veil of grief evokes the tenderness between two women who had shared intimacy as singers and quote-unquote sisters for almost 30 years. So there there we have there that. There you have it. Um, I, I love them. And, you know, it's hard because we don't get it from the mouths of babes, as you might say. But It's hard when they're not able to really talk about how they really felt or they're not really allowed because of the rules of society to be as open as they would want to be. Mm -hmm. I think that's always so hard. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also hard because coming from the black church, there's just never going to be a lot of openness around issues of queerness. It, the black church remains one of the more 
socially closed off environments that we still have where there's just not going to be a lot of open admitting of queer thoughts, queer relationships. And I think that's really a shame because there were a lot of people who probably fell this way or felt this way and just were never able to be themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you want to, do you have any kind of like main takeaways, some thoughts around this, this question of why, why we think that even though Rosetta and Marie denied the rumors uh, as gossip, but, you know, we have enough. Well, I think sometimes for me, queerness is action. It's relationships. It's a relational idea that you may not always have words for it. And you may not always want to put a label on it or a label wasn't well known. But if you look at the relationship more than trying to put a label or name to it, you clearly see love and you see this identity. And for me, I guess my final thought looking at Sister Rosetta Tharp is how she's continually throughout her whole life trying to be so many things and being part of different worlds, part of the gospel world, but also part of the secular world, having these husbands husbands to be part of the straight world, but having these relationships with women to be part of the more unspoken queer world. So I'm always touched about how hard it is to really be yourself when you're a public performer. And that's one of the big things I'm always taking away from her story. Yeah. What about you? Do you have any final thoughts or I mean, I think I've I think I've said mostly what I said. I really like yeah, what you're talking about is is her kind of existing between the lines in so many different spheres of her life, which made her such a groundbreaking figure. And the fact that she was one of the people who didn't go one way or the other permanently that she always kind of straddled that line and not a lot of people could do that like like you were saying a lot of people would like grow up in the church and leave and you know join and become motown stars the fact that she was able to be in that in-between space for so long is really remarkable but also is something that you know kind of hindered her in some ways So we are unfortunately coming to the end of our time. We've told the story of Rosetta Tharp. We've told some information about her queerness. We just wanted to mention a pop culture tie-in, which I found was really interesting. I mean, there's there's a really wonderful documentary that we'll put a link to. You can actually watch online. It's um, The Godmother of Rock and Roll, which we've also used as a source. And you get to see some really cool people who are part of her life talk about her and her legacy. So, uh, as folks may know on this show, when we have a guest host who it's their first time, we lovingly haze them by making them go first in our How Gay Were They? So, Aubrey, knowing everything that we know about Rosetta Tharp and gospel music and everything that we've talked about, how gay was Rosetta Tharp? I think Sister Rosetta Tharp is probably... Seven guitar riffs. Gay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'd say seven guitar riffs. No, seven wailing, picking, strutting, strumming it better than any man can guitar riffs. Gay. Yes. <laughs> uh, why Why the seven? Why the seven? I pick seven out of ten because you can't go full ten. Because, <laughs> they, you know, you can't make someone be gay if they don't want to admit it. But... Right. She was definitely gay. So I'd say seven. Yeah. You know, I don't want to discount those relationships with those husbands that were using her, but I'm good with seven. There you go. 
What about yeah, you? I think for me, I want to go with. I'm. You know what? I'm all. I think. I think you. You hit the nail on the head with seven. I think that's a really good number. Um, so I'm gonna go with seven angry poodles of queerness <laughs> for Sister Rosetta Tharp. Uh, punctuated by a sick guitar riff from her white S.G. Gibson, which apparently was, according to Marie, buried with her, but then other reports said that Russell, like, hawked it at a pawn shop. Yeah, which he, he wouldn't weird. let her, he wouldn't bury that guitar. <laughs> right, no. yeah. This, like, iconic white it's still guitar. There. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Aubrey, for coming on this and This has been so much about- fun. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> I, I hope that folks enjoy this episode. I really have enjoyed it. This is also like our first episode where we're like putting some music in. Um, I really wanted to do that with the uh, with the Harlem Renaissance ladies, but the recordings were so old and scratchy. It's just really, really hard to make it out unless you have like lyrics on the screen with you. So this is our opportunity to really showcase uh, the way that Sister Rosetta Tharp sounded. And I'm really grateful to you, Aubrey, for bringing your history and your perspectives. And I look forward to doing more episodes with you. Uh, please tell the lovely listeners uh, some information about you and where they can find you online and hear more of your voice. Well, sure. Uh, so I'm Aubrey Calvin. And when I'm not telling my daughter random trivia facts that she absolutely loves, uh, <laughs> you can find me on my brand new podcast, Southern Queries, where my co-host India Bastian and I talk to guests about what it's like to be queer in the South. So we're at southernqueries.com in our first episode's premiere uh, this month in August. And then you can also find my own personal writing at aubreycalvin.com. That's A-U-B-R-E-E. Yes, Aubrey as in queer. Two E's in each. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, that's a great tagline. You should put that on uh, on like a business card. Yeah, I'm going to figure that. Aubrey is in queer. It's like two I love E's. it. <laughs> uh, and as always, uh, I'm Lee. And when I'm not nerding out about badass guitar players running around the 1950s slaying dude male guitarists i'm usually talking about comics and queer tv over at a paradox and flux on twitter and chatting about more podcasty things and living inside because coronavirus so stay inside people stay Don't inside wear a mask please history is gay podcast can be found on tumblr at history is gay podcast twitter at history is gay pod and you can always drop us a line with questions suggestions or just to say hi at history is gay podcast at gmail.com as always we love getting emails and if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it you can support us on patreon where you can get access to sappho salon minisodes special sneak peeks the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show and more you can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our wonderful Patreon community, along with the amazing Ashley A. Gundrum, Rena McNeil, and Tyler DeYoung. Thank you so much for your support. And also just as a reminder, all of the funds that come from our Patreon right now, as well as our store where you can get really fun uh, History is Gay swag. Uh, we'll be going to the Okra Project right now, which uh, provides free and healthy meals to Black trans people and 
It's a really, really, really wonderful organization, and they've actually started up uh, funds for Nina Pop and Tony McDade as well, so go check them out. And lastly, please remember to rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It always helps more people to find the show when we get more reviews, and we can expand this awesome community and bring even more wonderful people on the show. So, Aubrey, would you like to help me close out the show of in, course. Your, in your wonderful first appearance? Of course. All right, everybody, that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Thank you.